Act One, Scene Five of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins. Act One, Scene Five. Exit Wilding. On the morning of the next day, Wilding went out alone after leaving a message with his clerk. "'If Mr. Vendale should ask for me,' he said, "'or if Mr. Bintrey should call, tell them I am gone to the foundling.' All that his partner had said to him, all that his lawyer following on the same side could urge, had left him persisting unshaken in his own point of view to find the lost man whose place he had usurped was now the paramount interest of his life, and to inquire at the foundling was plainly to take the first step in the direction of discovery. To the foundling, accordingly, the wine-merchant now went. The once familiar aspect of the building was altered to him, as the look of the portrait over the chimney-piece was altered to him. His one dearest association with the place which had sheltered his childhood had been broken away from it for ever. A strange reluctance possessed him when he stated his business at the door. His heart ached as he sat alone in the waiting-room while the treasurer of the institution was being sent for to see him. When the interview began it was only by a painful effort that he could compose himself sufficiently to mention the nature of his errand. The treasurer listened with a face that promised all needful attention, but promised nothing more. "'We are obliged to be cautious,' he said, when it came to his turn to speak, "'about all inquiries which are made by strangers.' "'You can hardly consider me a stranger,' answered Wilding simply. "'I was one of your poor lost children here, in the bygone time.' The treasurer politely rejoined that this circumstance inspired him with a special interest in his visitor. But he pressed nevertheless for that visitor's motive in making his inquiry. Without further preface, Wilding told him his motive, suppressing nothing. The treasurer rose and led the way into the room in which the registers of the institution were kept. "'All the information which our books can give is heartily at your service.' he said. After the time that has elapsed, I am afraid it is the only information we have to offer you. The books were consulted, and the entry was found expressed as follows. 3rd of March, 1836. Adopted and removed from the Foundling Hospital, a male infant named Walter Wilding. Name and condition of the person adopting the child— Mrs. Jane Ann Miller, widow. Address, Lime Tree Lodge, Groombridge Wells. References, the Reverend John Harker, Groombridge Wells. And Messrs. Giles, Jeremy and Giles, Bankers, Lombard Street. Is that all? asked the wine merchant. Have you no after-communication with Mrs. Miller? None, or some reference to it must have appeared in this book. "'May I take a copy of the entry?' "'Certainly. You are a little agitated. Let me make a copy for you.' "'My only chance, I suppose,' 
said Wilding, looking sadly at the copy, is to inquire at Mrs. Miller's residence, and to try if her references can help me. "'That is the only chance I see at present,' answered the treasurer. "'I heartily wish I could have been of some further assistance to you.' With those farewell words to comfort him, Wilding set forth on the journey of investigation which began from the foundling doors. The first stage to make for was plainly the house of business of the bankers in Lombard Street. Two of the partners in the firm were inaccessible to chance visitors when he asked for them. The third, after raising certain inevitable difficulties, consented to let a clerk examine the ledger marked with the initial letter M. The account of Mrs. Miller, widow of Groombridge Wells, was found. Two long lines in faded ink were drawn across it, and at the bottom of the page there appeared this note. Account closed. September the 30th, 1837. And so the first stage of the journey was reached, and so it ended in no thoroughfare. After sending a note to Cripple Corner to inform his partner that his absence might be prolonged for some hours, Wilding took his place in the train, and started for the second stage of the journey, Mrs. Miller's residence at Groombridge Wells. Mothers and children travelled with him, Mothers and children met each other at the station. Mothers and children were in the shops when he entered them to inquire for Lime Tree Lodge. Everywhere the nearest and dearest of human relations showed itself happily in the happy light of day. Everywhere he was reminded of the treasured delusion from which he had been awakened so cruelly, of the lost memory which had passed from him like a reflection from a glass. Inquiring here, inquiring there, he could hear of no such place as Lime Tree Lodge. Passing a house-agent's office, he went in wearily, and put the question for the last time. The house-agent pointed across the street to a dreary mansion of many windows, which might have been a manufactory, but which was a hotel. Mm, "'That's where Lime Tree Lodge stood, sir,' said the man. Ten years ago.' the second stage reached, and no thoroughfare again. But one chance was left. The clerical reference, Mr. Harker, still remained to be found. Customers coming in at the moment to occupy the house-agent's attention, Wilding went down the street, and entering a bookseller's shop, asked if he could be informed of the Reverend John Harker's present address. The bookseller looked unaffectedly shocked and astonished, and made no answer. Wilding repeated his question. The bookseller took up from his counter a prim little volume in a binding of sober grey. He handed it to his visitor, open at the title-page. Wilding read, The Martyrdom of the Reverend John Harker in New Zealand, related by a former member of his flock. Wilding put the book down on the counter. "'I beg your pardon,' he said, thinking a little, perhaps, of his own present martyrdom while he spoke. The silent bookseller acknowledged the apology by a bow. Wilding went out. Third and last stage, and no thoroughfare for the third and last time. There was nothing more to be done. There was absolutely no choice but to go back to London, defeated on all points. 
From time to time on the return journey, the wine merchant looked at his copy of the entry in the Foundling Register. There is one among the many forms of despair, perhaps the most pitiable of all, which persists in disguising itself as hope. Wilding checked himself in the act of throwing the useless morsel of paper out of the carriage window. "'It may lead to something yet,' he thought. "'While I live I won't part with it. When I die my executors shall find it sealed up with my will.' Now the mention of a will set the good wine-merchant on a new track of thought, without diverting his mind from its engrossing subject. He must make his will immediately. The application of the phrase, no thoroughfare, to the case had originated with Mr. Vintry. In their first long conference following the discovery, that sagacious personage had a hundred times repeated, with an obstructive shake of the head, No thoroughfare, sir, no thoroughfare. My belief is that there is no way out of this at this time of day and my advice is, make yourself comfortable where you are. In the course of the protracted consultation, a magnum of the forty-five-year-old port wine had been produced for the wetting of Mr. Bintrey's legal whistle. But the more clearly he saw his way through the wine, the more emphatically he did not see his way through the case, repeating as often as he set his glass down empty, Mr. Wilding, no thoroughfare. Rest and be thankful. It is certain that the honest wine-merchant's anxiety to make a will originated in profound conscientiousness, though it is possible, and quite consistent with his rectitude, that he may unconsciously have derived some feeling of relief from the prospect of delegating his own difficulty to two other men who were to come after him. Be that as it may, he pursued his new track of thought with great ardour, and lost no time in begging George Vendale and Mr. Bintrey to meet him in Cripple Corner and share his confidence. "'Being all three assembled with closed doors,' said Mr. Bintrey, addressing the new partner on the occasion, "'I wish to observe, before our friend and my client entrusts us with his further views, that I have endorsed what I understand from him to have been your advice, Mr. Vendale, and what would be the advice of every sensible man. I have told him that he positively must keep his secret. I have spoken with Mrs. Goldstraw both in his presence and in his absence, and if anybody is to be trusted, which is a very large if, I think she is to be trusted to that extent. I have pointed out to our friend and my client that to set on foot random inquiries would not only be to raise the devil in the likeness of all the swindlers in the kingdom, but would also be to waste the estate. Now you see, Mr. Vendale, our friend and my client, does not desire to waste the estate but, on the contrary, desires to husband it for what he considers, but I can't say I do, the rightful owner, if such rightful owner should ever be found. I am very much mistaken, if he ever will be, but never mind that. 
Mr. Wilding and I are at least agreed that the estate is not to be wasted. Now, I have yielded to Mr. Wilding's desire to keep an advertisement at intervals flowing through the newspapers, cautiously inviting any person who may know anything about that adopted infant, taken from the foundling hospital, to come to my office. And I have pledged myself that such advertisement shall regularly appear. I have gathered from our friend and my client that I meet you here to-day to take his instructions, not to give him advice. I am prepared to receive his instructions, and to respect his wishes. But you will please observe that this does not imply my approval of either as a matter of professional opinion. Thus Mr. Bintrey, talking quite as much at Wilding as to Vendale, and yet in spite of his care for his client, he was so amused by his client's quixotic conduct as to eye him from time to time with twinkling eyes, in the light of a highly comical curiosity. "'Nothing,' observed Wilding, "'can be clearer. I only wish my head were as clear as yours, Mr. Bintrey.' "'If you feel that singing in it coming on,' hinted the lawyer with an alarmed glass, "'put it off.' I mean the interview. Not at all. I thank you, said Wilding. What I was going to— Don't excite yourself, Mr. Wilding, urged the lawyer. No, I wasn't going to, said the wine-merchant. Mr. Bintrey and George Vendale, would you have any hesitation or objection to become my joint trustees and executors, or can you at once consent? I consent replied George Vendale readily. "'I consent,' said Bintrey, not so readily. "'Thank you both. Mr. Bintrey, my instructions for my last will and testament are short and plain. Perhaps you will now have the goodness to take them down. I leave the whole of my real and personal estate, without any exception or reservation whatsoever, to you two, my joint trustees and executors, in trust, to pay over the whole to the true Walter Wilding, if he shall be found and identified within two years after the day of my death, failing that, in trust to you two, to pay over the whole as a benefaction and legacy to the Foundling Hospital. Those are all your instructions, are they, Mr. Wilding? demanded Bintrey, after a blank silence, during which nobody had looked at anybody. "'The whole!' "'And as to those instructions, you have absolutely made up your mind, Mr. Wilding?' "'Absolutely, decidedly, finally!' "'It only remains,' said the lawyer, with one shrug of his shoulders, to get them into technical and binding form, and to execute and attest. Now does that press? Is there any hurry about it? You are not going to die yet, sir? Mr. Bintrey, answered Wilding gravely, when I am going to die is within other knowledge than yours or mine. I shall be glad to have this matter off my mind, if you please. 
"'We are lawyer and client again,' rejoined Bintrey, who for the nonce had become almost sympathetic. "'If this day week, here, at the same hour, will suit Mr. Vendale and yourself, I will enter in my diary that I attend you accordingly.' The appointment was made, and in due sequence kept. The will was formally signed, sealed, delivered, and witnessed, and was carried off by Mr. Bintrey for safe storage among the papers of his clients, ranged in their respective iron boxes, with their respective owners' names outside, on iron tiers in his consulting-room, as if that legal sanctuary were a condensed family vault of clients. With more heart than he had lately had for former subjects of interest, Wilding then set about completing his patriarchal establishment, being much assisted not only by Mrs. Goldstraw, but by Vendale too, who perhaps had in his mind the giving of an Obenreiser dinner as soon as possible. Anyhow, the establishment being reported in sound working order, the Obenreiser's guardian and ward were invited to dinner, and Madame Dor was included in the invitation. If Vendale had been over head and ears in love before, a phrase not to be taken as implying the faintest doubt about it, this dinner plunged him down in love ten thousand fathoms deep. Yet for the life of him he could not get one word alone with charming Marguerite. So surely as a blessed moment seemed to come, Obenreiser in his filmy state would stand at Vendale's elbow, or the broad back of Madame Dor would appear before his eyes. That speechless matron was never seen in a front view, from the moment of her arrival until that of departure, except at dinner, and from the instant of her retirement to the drawing-room, after a hearty participation in that meal, she turned her face to the wall again. Yet— through four or five delightful, though distracting hours, Marguerite was to be seen, Marguerite was to be heard, Marguerite was to be occasionally touched. When they made the round of the old dark cellars, Vendale led her by the hand. When she sang to him in the lighted room at night, Vendale, standing by her, held her relinquished gloves, and would have bartered them against every drop of the forty-five-year-old, though it had been forty-five times forty-five years old, and its net price forty-five times forty-five pounds per dozen. And still when she was gone, and a great gap of an extinguisher was clapped on Cripple Corner, he tormented himself by wondering, did she think that he admired her? Did she think that he adored her? Did she suspect that she had won him heart and soul? Did she care to think at all about it? And so did she, and didn't she, up and down the gamut, and above the line and below the line, dear, dear, poor restless heart of humanity, to think that the men who were mummies thousands of years ago did the same, and ever found the secret how to be quiet after it. "'What do you think, George?' Wilding asked him next day. "'Of Mr. Obenreiser. I won't ask you what you think of Miss Obenreiser.' "'I don't know,' said Vendale. "'And I never did know. 
or to think of him. "'He is well informed and clever,' said Wilding. "'Certainly clever. "'A good musician. "'He had played very well and sung very well overnight.' "'Unquestionably a good musician.' "'And talks well.' "'Yes,' said George Vendale, ruminating. "'And talks well. "'Do you know, Wilding, it oddly occurs to me, as I think about him, "'that he doesn't keep silence well.' "'How do you mean? "'He is not obtrusively talkative.' "'No, I don't mean that. "'But when he is silent you can hardly help vaguely though perhaps most unjustly mistrusting him take people whom you know and like take any one you know and like soon done my good fellow said wilding i take you huh, i didn't bargain for that or foresee it returned vendale laughing however take me reflect for a moment is your approving knowledge of my interesting face mainly founded however various the momentary expressions it may include, on my face when I am silent? I think it is, said Wilding. I think so too. Now you see, when Obenreiser speaks, in other words, when he is allowed to explain himself away, he comes out right enough. But when he has not the opportunity of explaining himself away, he comes out rather wrong. Therefore it is that I say he does not keep silence well. And passing hastily in review such faces as I know and don't trust, I am inclined to think, now I give my mind to it, that none of them keep silence well. This proposition in physiognomy, being new to Wilding, he was at first slow to admit it, until, asking himself the question whether Mrs. Goldstraw kept silence well, and remembering that her face in repose decidedly invited trustfulness, he was as glad as men usually are to believe what they desire to believe. But, as he was very slow to regain his spirits or his health, his partner as another means of setting him up, and perhaps also with contingent Obenreiser views, reminded him of those musical schemes of his in connection with his family, and how a singing-class was to be formed in the house, and a choir in a neighbouring church. The class was established speedily, and two or three of the people having already some musical knowledge, and singing tolerably, the choir soon followed. The latter was led and chiefly taught by Wilding himself, who had hopes of converting his dependents into so many foundlings, in respect of their capacity to sing sacred choruses. Now the Obenreisers, being skilled musicians, it was easily brought to pass that they should be asked to join these musical unions. Guardian and ward consenting, or guardian consenting for both, it was necessarily brought to pass that Vendale's life became a life of absolute thraldom and enchantment. For in the mouldy Christopher Wren church on Sundays, with its dearly beloved brethren assembled and met together, five-and-twenty strong. Was not that her voice, that shot like light into the darkest places, thrilling the walls and pillars, as though they were pieces of his heart? What time, too, Madame Dor, in a corner of the high pew, turning her back upon everybody and everything, could not fail to be ritualistically right at some moment of the service, 
like the man whom the doctors recommended to get drunk once a month, and who, that he might not overlook it, got drunk every day. But even those seraphic Sundays were surpassed by the Wednesday concerts established for the patriarchal family. At those concerts she would sit down to the piano and sing them in her own tongue, songs of her own land, songs calling from the mountain-tops to Vendale, rise above the grovelling level country, come far away from the crowd, pursue me as I mount higher, 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 melting into the azure distance, rise to my supremest height of all, and love me here. Then would the pretty bodice, the clocked stocking, and the silver-buckled shoe be, like the broad forehead and the fair eyes, fraught with the spring of a very chamois, until the strain was over. Not even over Vendale himself did these songs of hers cast a more potent spell than over Joey Ladle in his different way. Steadily refusing to muddle the harmony by taking any share in it, and evincing the supremest contempt for scales and such-like rudiments of music, which, indeed, seldom captivate mere listeners, Joey did at first give up the whole business for a bad job, and the whole of the performers for a set of howling dervishes. But descrying traces of unmuddled harmony in a part-song one day, he gave his two under-cellarmen faint hopes of getting on towards something in course of time. An anthem of Handel's led to further encouragement from him, though he objected that the great musician must have been down in some of them foreign cellars pretty much, for to go and say the same thing so many times over, which, took it in how you might, he considered a certain sign of your having took it in somehow. On a third occasion the public appearance of Mr. Jarvis with a flute, and of an odd man with a violin, and the performance of a duet by the two did so astonish him that, solely on his own impulse and motion, he became inspired with the words, Anne-core, repeatedly pronouncing them, as if calling in a familiar manner for some lady who had distinguished herself in the orchestra. But this was his final testimony to the merits of his mates, for the instrumental duet being performed at the first Wednesday concert, and being presently followed by the voice of Marguerite Obenreiser, he sat with his mouth open, entranced, until she had finished, when, rising from his place with much solemnity, and prefacing what he was about to say with a bow that specifically included Mr. Wilding in it, he delivered himself of the gratifying sentiment, "'Arter that, you may all on you get to bed, and ever afterwards declined to render homage in any other words to the musical powers of the family. Thus began a separate personal acquaintance between Marguerite Obenreiser and Joey Ladle. She laughed so heartily at his compliment, and yet was so abashed by it, that Joey made bold to say to her, after the concert was over, he hoped he wasn't so muddled in his head as to have took a liberty. She made him a gracious reply, and Joey ducked in return. "'You'll change the luck time about, miss,' said Joey, ducking again. "'It's such as you in the place that can bring round the luck of the place.' "'Can I?' 
"'Round the luck?' she answered in her pretty English, with a pretty wonder. "'I fear I do not understand. I am so stupid.' "'Young Master Wilding, miss,' Joey explained confidentially, though not much to her enlightenment, "'changed the luck afore he took in young Master George. So I say, and so they'll find. Lord, only come into the place and sing over the luck a few times, miss, and he won't be able to help itself.' With this, and with a whole brood of ducks, Joey backed out of the presence. But Joey, being a privileged person, and even an involuntary conquest being pleasant to youth and beauty, Marguerite merrily looked out for him next time. "'Where is my Mr. Joey, please?' she asked Vendale. So Joey was produced, and shaken hands with, and that became an institution. Another institution arose in this wise. Joey was a little hard of hearing. He himself said it was wipers, and perhaps it might have been, but whatever the cause of the effect, there the effect was upon him. On this first occasion he had been seen to sidle along the wall with his left hand to his left ear, until he had sidled himself into a seat pretty near the singer, in which place and position he had remained, until addressing to his friends the amateurs the compliment before mentioned. It was observed on the following Wednesday that Joey's action as a pecking-machine was impaired at dinner, and it was rumoured about the table that this was explainable by his high-strung expectations of Miss Obenreiser's singing, and his fears of not getting a place where he could hear every note and syllable. The rumour reaching Wilding's ears, he in his good nature called Joey to the front at night before Marguerite began. Thus the institution came into being that on succeeding nights Marguerite's running her hands over the keys before singing always said to Vendale, "'Where is my Mr. Joey, please?' and that Vendale always brought him forth and stationed him nearby. That he should then, when all eyes were upon him, express in his face the utmost contempt for the exertions of his friends and confidence in Marguerite alone whom he would stand contemplating, not unlike the rhinoceros out of the spelling-book, tamed and on his hind legs, was a part of the institution. Also that when he remained after the singing, in his most ecstatic state, some bold spirit from the back should say, "'What do you think of it, Joey?' And he should be goaded to reply, as having that instant conceived the retort, "'Arter that, ye may all on ye get to bed.' These were other parts of the institution. But the simple pleasures and small jests of Cripple Corner were not destined to have a long life. Underlying them from the first was a serious matter which every member of the patriarchal family knew of, but which by tacit agreement all forbore to speak of. Mr. Wilding's health was in a bad way. He might have overcome the shock he had sustained in the one great affection of his life, or he might have overcome his consciousness of being in the enjoyment of another man's property, but the two together were too much for him. 
a man haunted by twin ghosts, he became deeply depressed. The inseparable spectres sat at the board with him, ate from his platter, drank from his cup, and stood by his bedside at night. When he recalled his supposed mother's love, he felt as though he had stolen it. When he rallied a little under the respect and attachment of his dependents, he felt as though he were even fraudulent in making them happy. For that should have been the unknown man's duty and gratification. Gradually, under the pressure of his brooding mind, his body stooped, his step lost its elasticity, his eyes were seldom lifted from the ground. He knew he could not help the deplorable mistake that had been made, but he knew he could not mend it. For the days and weeks went by, and no one claimed his name or his possessions. And now there began to creep over him a cloudy consciousness of often recurring confusion in his head. He would unaccountably lose sometimes whole hours, sometimes a whole day and night. Once his remembrance stopped as he sat at the head of the dinner-table, and was blank until daybreak. Another time it stopped as he was beating time to their singing, and went on again when he and his partner were walking in the courtyard by the light of the moon, half the night later. He asked Vendale, always full of consideration, work, and help, how this was. Vendale only replied, "'You have not been quite well, that's all.' He looked for explanation into the faces of his people, but they would put it off with, "'Glad to see you looking so much better, sir,' or, "'Hope you're doing nicely now, sir,' which was no information at all. At length, when the partnership was but five months old, Walter Wilding took to his bed, and his housekeeper became his nurse. "'Lying here, perhaps you will not mind my calling you Sally, Mrs. Goldstraw?' said the poor wine-merchant. "'It sounds more natural to me, sir, than any other name, and I like it better.' "'Thank you, Sally. I think, Sally, I must of late have been subject to fits. Is that so, Sally? Don't mind telling me now.' "'It has happened, sir.' "'Ah, that's the explanation,' he quietly remarked. Mr. Obenreiser, Sally, talks of the world as being so small that it is not strange how often the same people come together, and come together at various places, and various stages of life. But it does seem strange, Sally, that I should, as I may say, come round to the foundling to die. He extended his hand to her, and she gently took it. "'You are not going to die, dear Mr. Wilding.' "'So Mr. Bintrey said, but I think he was wrong. "'The old child-feeling is coming back upon me, Sally, "'the old hush and rest as I used to fall asleep.' "'After an interval he said in a placid voice, "'Please kiss me, nurse.' "'And it was evident, believed himself to be lying in the old dormitory.' as she had been used to bend over the fatherless and motherless children. Sally bent over the fatherless and motherless man, 
and put her lips to his forehead, murmuring, "'God bless you!' "'God bless you!' he replied, in the same tone. After another interval he opened his eyes in his own character, and said, "'Don't move me, Sally, because of what I am going to say. I lie quite easily. I think my time is come. I don't know how it may appear to you, Sally, but—' Insensibility fell upon him for a few minutes. He emerged from it once more. "'I don't know how it may appear to you, Sally, but so it appears to me.' When he had thus conscientiously finished his favourite sentence, his time came, and he died. End of Act One, Scene Five, and End of Act One. Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk. Recorded in March two thousand and seven. Act Two, Scene One of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens. Act Two, Scene One. Vendale makes love. The summer and the autumn passed. Christmas and the new year were at hand. As executors honestly bent on performing their duty towards the dead, Vendale and Bintrey had held more than one anxious consultation on the subject of Wilding's will. The lawyer had declared from the first that it was simply impossible to take any action in the matter at all. The only obvious inquiries to make in relation to the lost man had been made already by Wilding himself, with this result, that time and death together had left not a trace of him discoverable. To advertise for the claimant to the property, it would be necessary to mention particulars, a course of proceeding which would invite half the impostors in England to present themselves in the character of the true Walter Wilding. If we find a chance of tracing the lost man, we will take it. If we don't, let us meet for another consultation on the first anniversary of Wilding's death. So Bintrey advised, and so, with the most earnest desire to fulfil his dead friend's wishes, Vendale was fain to let the matter rest for the present. Turning from his interest in the past to his interest in the future, Vendale still found himself confronting a doubtful prospect. Months on months had passed since his first visit to Soho Square, and through all that time the one language in which he had told Marguerite that he loved her was the language of the eyes, assisted at convenient opportunities by the language of the hand. What was the obstacle in his way? The one immovable obstacle which had been in his way from the first? 
no matter how fairly the opportunities looked, Vendale's efforts to speak with Marguerite alone ended invariably in one and the same result. Under the most accidental circumstances, in the most innocent manner possible, Obenreizer was always in the way. With the last days of the old year came an unexpected chance of spending an evening with Marguerite, which Vendale resolved should be a chance of speaking privately to her as well. A cordial note from Obenreizer invited him, on New Year's Day, to a little family dinner in Soho Square. "'We shall only be four, the note said. "'We shall only be two, Vendale determined, before the evening is out. New Year's Day among the English is associated with the giving and receiving of dinners, and with nothing more. New Year's Day among the foreigners is the grand opportunity of the year for the giving and receiving of presents. It is occasionally possible to acclimatise a foreign custom. In this instance Vendale felt no hesitation about making the attempt. His one difficulty was to decide what his New Year's gift to Marguerite should be. The defensive pride of the peasant's daughter, morbidly sensitive to the inequality between her social position and his, would be secretly roused against him if he ventured on a rich offering. A gift which a poor man's purse might purchase was the one gift that could be trusted to find its way to her heart for the giver's sake. Stoutly resisting temptation, in the form of diamonds and rubies, Vendale bought a brooch of the filigree work of Genoa, the simplest and most unpretending ornament that he could find in the jeweller's shop. He slipped his gift into Marguerite's hand as she held it out to welcome him on the day of the dinner. "'This is your first New Year's Day in England,' he said. "'Will you help me to make it like a New Year's Day at home?' She thanked him a little constrainedly as she looked at the jeweller's box, uncertain what it might contain. Opening the box and discovering the studiously simple form under which Vendale's little keepsake offered itself to her, she penetrated his motive on the spot. Her face turned on him brightly with a look which said, "'I own you have pleased and flattered me.' Never had she been so charming, in Vendale's eyes, as she was at that moment. Her winter dress, a petticoat of dark silk with a bodice of black velvet rising to her neck, and enclosing it softly in a little circle of swan's down, heightened by all the force of contrast the dazzling fairness of her hair and her complexion. It was only when she turned aside from him to the glass, and, taking out the brooch that she wore, put his New Year's gift in its place, that Vendale's attention wandered far enough away from her to discover the presence of other persons in the room. He now became conscious that the hands of Obenreizer were affectionately in possession of his elbows. He now heard the voice of Obenreizer thanking him for his attention to Marguerite, with the faintest possible ring of mockery in its tone. "'Such a simple present, dear sir, and showing such nice tact!' He now discovered, for the first time, that there was one other guest, and but one besides himself whom Obenreizer presented as a compatriot and friend. 
The friend's face was mouldy, and the friend's figure was fat. His age was suggestive of the autumnal period of human life. In the course of the evening he developed two extraordinary capabilities. One was a capacity for silence. The other was a capacity for emptying bottles. Madame Dor was not in the room. Neither was there any visible place reserved for her when they sat down to table. Obenreiser explained that it was the good Dor's simple habit to dine always in the middle of the day. She would make her excuses later in the evening. Vendale wondered whether the good Dor had on this occasion varied her domestic employment from cleaning Obenreiser's gloves to cooking Obenreiser's dinner. This at least was certain. The dishes served were, one and all, as achievements in cookery, high above the reach of the rudimentary art of England. The dinner was unobtrusively perfect. As for the wine, the eyes of the speechless friend rolled over it, as in solemn ecstasy. Sometimes he said, Good, when a bottle came in full. And sometimes he said, Ah, when a bottle went out empty and there his contributions to the gaiety of the evening ended. Silence is occasionally infectious. Oppressed by private anxieties of their own, Marguerite and Vendale appeared to feel the influence of the speechless friend. The whole responsibility of keeping the talk going rested on Obenreiser's shoulder, and manfully did Obenreiser sustain it. He opened his heart in the character of an enlightened foreigner, and sang the praises of England. When other topics ran dry, he returned to this inexhaustible source, and always set the stream running again as copiously as ever. Obenreiser would have given an arm, an eye, or a leg to have been born an Englishman. Out of England there was no such institution as a home, no such thing as a fireside, no such object as a beautiful woman. His dear Miss Marguerite would excuse him if he accounted for her attractions on the theory that English blood must have mixed at some former time with their obscure and unknown ancestry. Survey this English nation, and behold a tall, clean, plump, and solid people. Look at their cities! What magnificence in their public buildings! What admirable order and propriety in their streets! Admire their laws! combining the eternal principle of justice with the other eternal principle of pounds, shillings, and pence, and applying the product to all civil injuries, from an injury to a man's honour to an injury to a man's nose. You have ruined my daughter, pounds, shillings, and pence. You have knocked me down with a blow in my face, pounds, shillings, and pence. Where was the material prosperity of such a country as that to stop? Obenreiser, projecting himself into the future, failed to see the end of it. Obenreiser's enthusiasm entreated permission to exhale itself, English fashion, in a toast. Here is our modest little dinner over, here is our frugal dessert on the table, and here is the admirer of England conforming to national customs and making a speech. Toast to your white cliffs of Albion, Mr. Vendale, to your national virtues, your charming climate, and your fascinating women. 
to your hearths, to your homes, to your habeas corpus, and to all your other institutions. In one word, to England. Heap, 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 hooray! Obenreiser's voice had barely chanted the last note of the English cheer. The speechless friend had barely drained the last drop out of his glass, when the festive proceedings were interrupted by a modest tap at the door. A woman-servant came in and approached her master with a little note in her hand. Obenreiser opened the note with a frown, and after reading it with an expression of genuine annoyance, passed it on to his compatriot and friend. Vendale's spirits rose as he watched these proceedings. Had he found an ally in the annoying little note? Was the long-looked-for chance actually coming at last? "'I am afraid there is no help for it,' said Obenreiser, addressing his fellow-countryman. "'I am afraid we must go.' The speechless friend handed back the letter, shrugged his heavy shoulders, and poured himself out a last glass of wine. His fat fingers lingered fondly round the neck of the bottle. They pressed it with a little amatory squeeze at parting. His globular eyes looked dimly, as through an intervening haze, at Vendale and Marguerite. His heavy articulation laboured, and brought forth a whole sentence at a birth. "'I think,' he said, "'I should have liked a little more wine.' His breath failed him after that effort. He gasped, and walked to the door. Obenreiser addressed himself to Vendale, with an appearance of the deepest distress. "'I am so shocked, so confused, so distressed,' he began. "'A misfortune has happened to one of my compatriots. He is alone, he is ignorant of your language. I and my good friend here have no choice but to go and help him. What can I say in my excuse?' How can I describe my affliction at depriving myself in this way of the honour of your company? He paused, evidently expecting to see Vendale take up his hat and retire. Discerning his opportunity at last, Vendale determined to do nothing of the kind. He met Obenreiser dexterously with Obenreiser's own weapons. "'Pray don't distress yourself,' he said. "'I'll wait here with the greatest pleasure till you come back.' Marguerite blushed deeply, and turned away to her embroidery frame in a corner by the window. The film showed itself in Obenreiser's eyes, and the smile came something sourly to Obenreiser's lips. To have told Vendale that there was no reasonable prospect of him coming back in good time would have been to risk offending a man whose favourable opinion was of solid commercial importance to him. Accepting his defeat with the best possible grace, he declared himself to be equally honoured and delighted by Vendale's proposal. So frank, so friendly, so English! He bustled about, apparently looking for something he wanted, disappeared for a moment through the folding doors communicating with the next room, came back with his hat and coat, and, protesting that he would return at the earliest possible moment, embraced Vendale's elbows, and vanished from the scene in company with the speechless friend. Vendale turned to the corner by the window, in which Marguerite had placed herself with her work. 
there as if she had dropped from the ceiling or come up through the floor there in the old attitude with her face to the stove sat an obstacle that had not been foreseen in the person of madame dor she half got up half looked over her broad shoulder at vendale and plumped down again was she at work yes cleaning obenreizer's gloves as before no darning obenreizer's stockings the case was now desperate two serious considerations presented themselves to vendale was it possible to put madame dor into the stove the stove wouldn't hold her was it possible to treat madame dor not as a living woman but as an article of furniture could the mind be brought to contemplate this respectable matron purely in the light of a chest of drawers with a black gauze headdress accidentally left on the top of it yes the mind could be brought to do that with a comparatively trifling effort vendale's mind did it as he took his place on the old-fashioned window-seat close by marguerite and her embroidery a slight movement appeared in the chest of drawers but no remark issued from it let it be remembered that solid furniture is not easy to move and that it has this advantage in consequence there is no fear of upsetting it unusually silent and unusually constrained with the bright colour fast fading from her face with a feverish energy possessing her fingers the pretty marguerite bent over her embroidery and worked as if her life depended on it hardly less agitated himself vendale felt the importance of leading her very gently to the avowal which he was eager to make to the other sweeter avowal still which he was longing to hear a woman's love is never to be taken by storm it yields insensibly to a system of gradual approach it ventures by the roundabout way and listens to the low voice vendale led her memory back to their past meetings when they were travelling together in switzerland they revived the impressions they recalled the events of the happy bygone time little by little marguerite's constraint vanished she smiled she was interested she looked at vendale she grew idle with her needle she made false stitches in her work their voices sank lower and lower their faces bent nearer and nearer to each other as they spoke and madame dor madame dor behaved like an angel she never looked round she never said a word she went on with obenreizer's stockings pulling each stocking up tight over her left arm and holding that arm aloft from time to time to catch the light on her work there were moments delicate and indescribable moments when madame dor appeared to be sitting upside down and contemplating one of her own respectable legs elevated in the air as the minutes wore on these elevations followed each other at longer and longer intervals now and again the black gauze headdress nodded dropped forward recovered itself a little heap of stockings slid softly from madame dor's lap and remained unnoticed on the floor 
a prodigious ball of worsted followed the stockings and rolled lazily under the table the black gauze headdress nodded dropped forward recovered itself nodded again dropped forward again and recovered itself no more a composite sound partly as of the purring of an immense cat partly as of the planing of a soft board rose over the hushed voices of the lovers and hummed at regular intervals through the room nature and madame dor had combined together in vendale's interests the best of women was asleep marguerite rose to stop uh, not the snoring let us say the audible repose of madame dor vendale laid his hand on her arm and pressed her back gently into her chair don't disturb her he whispered i have been waiting to tell you a secret let me tell it now marguerite resumed her seat she tried to resume her needle it was useless her eyes failed her her hand failed her she could find nothing we have been talking said vendale of the happy time when we first met and first travelled together i have a confession to make i have been concealing something when we spoke of my first visit to switzerland i told you of all the impressions i had brought back with me to england except one can you guess what that one is her eyes looked steadily at the embroidery and her face turned a little away from him signs of disturbance began to appear in the neat velvet bodice round the region of the brooch she made no reply vendale pressed the question without mercy can you guess what the one swiss impression is which i have not told you yet her face turned back towards him and a faint smile trembled on her lips an impression of the mountains perhaps she said slyly no a much more precious impression than that of the lakes no the lakes have not grown dearer and dearer in remembrance to me every day the lakes are not associated with my happiness in the present and my hopes in the future marguerite all that makes life worth having hangs for me on a word from your lips marguerite i love you her head drooped as he took her hand he drew her to him and looked at her the tears escaped from her downcast eyes and fell slowly over her cheeks oh mr vendale she said sadly it would have been kinder to have kept your secret have you forgotten the distance between us it can never never be there can be but one distance between us marguerite a distance of your making my love my darling there is no higher rank in goodness there is no higher rank in beauty than yours come whisper the one little word which tells me you will be my wife she sighed bitterly think of your family she murmured and think of mine vendale drew her a little nearer to him if you dwell on such an obstacle as that he said i shall think but one thought i shall think i have offended you 
She started and looked up. "'Oh, no!' she exclaimed innocently. The instant the words passed her lips she saw the construction that might be placed on them. Her confession had escaped her in spite of herself. A lovely flush of colour overspread her face. She made a momentary effort to disengage herself from her lover's embrace. She looked up at him entreatingly. She tried to speak. The words died on her lips in the kiss that Vendale pressed on them. "'Let me go, Mr. Vendale,' she said faintly. "'Call me George.' She laid her head on his bosom. All her heart went out to him at last. "'George,' she whispered, "'say you love me.' Her arms twined themselves gently around his neck. Her lips, timidly touching his cheek, murmured the delicious words, "'I love you!' In the moment of silence that followed, the sound of the opening and closing of the house-door came clear to them through the wintry stillness of the street. Marguerite started to her feet. "'Let me go,' she said. "'He has come back!' She hurried from the room and touched Madame Dor's shoulder in passing. Madame Dor woke up with a loud snort, looked first over one shoulder and then over the other, peered down into her lap and discovered neither stockings, worsted, nor darning-needle in it. At the same moment footsteps became audible ascending the stairs. "'Mon Dieu!' said Madame Dor, addressing herself to the stove and trembling violently. Vendale picked up the stockings and the ball and huddled them all back in a heap over her shoulder. "'Mon Dieu!' said Madame Dor for the second time, as the avalanche of worsted poured into her capacious lap. The door opened and Obenreiser came in. His first glance round the room showed him that Marguerite was absent. "'What?' he exclaimed. "'My niece is away? My niece is not here to entertain you in my absence? This is unpardonable!' I shall bring her back instantly. Vendale stopped him. I beg you will not disturb Miss Obenreiser, he said. You have returned, I see, without your friend. My friend remains and consoles our afflicted compatriot. A heart-rending scene, Mr. Vendale. The household gods at the pawnbroker's, the family immersed in tears. We all embraced in silence. My admirable friend alone possessed his composure. He sent out on the spot for a bottle of wine. Can I say a word to you in private, Mr. Obenreiser? Assuredly. He turned to Madame Dor. My good creature, you are sinking for want of repose. Mr. Vendale will excuse you. Madame Dor rose and set forth sideways on her journey from the stove to bed. She dropped a stocking. Vendale picked it up for her and opened one of the folding doors. She advanced a step and dropped three more stockings, Vendale stooping to recover them as before. Obenreiser interfered with profuse apologies and with a warning look at Madame Dour. Madame Dour acknowledged the look by dropping the whole of the stockings in a heap and then shuffling away panic-stricken from the scene of disaster. Hobenreiser swept up the complete collection fiercely, in both hands. "'Go!' he cried, giving his prodigious handful a preparatory swing in the air. Madame Dour said, "'Mon Dieu!' 
and vanished into the next room pursued by a shower of stockings. "'What you must think, Mr. Vendale,' said Obenreiser, closing the door, "'of this deplorable intrusion of domestic details. For myself I blush at it. We are beginning the new year as badly as possible. Everything has gone wrong to-night. Be seated, pray, and say, what may I offer you? Shall we pay our best respects to another of your noble English institutions? It is my study to be what you call jolly.' I propose a grog. Vendale declined the grog with all needful respect for that noble institution. I wish to speak to you on a subject in which I am deeply interested, he said. You must have noticed, Mr. Obenreiser, that I have from the first felt no ordinary admiration for your charming niece. You are very good. In my niece's name I thank you. Perhaps you may have noticed, latterly, that my admiration for Miss Obenreiser has grown into a tenderer and deeper feeling. Shall we say friendship, Mr. Vendale? Say love, and we shall be nearer to the truth. Obenreiser started out of his chair. The faintly discernible beat which was his nearest approach to a change of colour showed itself suddenly in his cheeks. "'You are Miss Obenreiser's guardian,' pursued Vendale. "'I ask you to confer upon me the greatest of all favours. I ask you to give me her hand in marriage.' Obenreiser dropped back into his chair. "'Mr. Vendale,' he said, "'you petrify me.' "'I will wait,' rejoined Vendale, until you have recovered yourself. One word before I recover myself. You have said nothing about this to my niece? I have opened my whole heart to your niece, and I have reason to hope— What? interposed Obenreiser. You have made a proposal to my niece, without first asking for my authority to pay your addresses to her? He struck his hand on the table, and lost his hold over himself for the first time in Vendale's experience of him. "'Sir!' he exclaimed indignantly. "'What sort of conduct is this? As a man of honour, speaking to a man of honour, how can you justify it?' "'I can only justify it as one of our English institutions,' said Vendale quietly. "'You admire our English institutions.' I can't honestly tell you, Mr. Obenreiser, that I regret what I have done. I can only assure you that I have not acted in the matter with any intentional disrespect towards yourself. This said, may I ask you to tell me plainly what objection you see to favouring my suit? I see this immense objection answered Obenreiser, that my niece and you are not on a social equality together. My niece is the daughter of a poor peasant, and you are the son of a gentleman. You do us an honour, he added, lowering himself gradually to his customary polite level, which deserves, and has, our most grateful acknowledgments. But the inequality is too glaring, the sacrifice is too great. You English are a proud people, Mr. Vendale. I have observed enough of this country to see that such a marriage as you propose would be a scandal here, 
not a hand would be held out to your peasant wife, and all of your best friends would desert you. One moment, said Vendale, interposing on his side. I may claim, without any great arrogance, to know more of my country people in general, and of my own friends in particular, than you do. In the estimation of everybody whose opinion is worth having, my wife herself would be the one sufficient justification of my marriage. If I did not feel certain, observe, I say, certain that I am offering her a position which she can accept without so much as the shadow of an humiliation, I would never, cost me what it might, have asked her to be my wife. Is there any other obstacle that you see? Have you any personal objection to me? Obenreizer spread out both his hands in courteous protest. "'Personal objection?' he exclaimed. "'Dear sir, the bare question is painful to me.' "'We are both men of business,' pursued Vendale, "'and you naturally expect me to satisfy you that I have the means of supporting a wife. I can explain my pecuniary position in two words. I inherit from my parents a fortune of twenty thousand pounds.' In half of that sum I have only a life interest, to which, if I die leaving a widow, my widow succeeds. If I die leaving children, the money itself is divided among them, as they come of age. The other half of my fortune is at my own disposal, and is invested in the wine business. I see my way to greatly improving that business. As it stands at present, I cannot state my return from my capital embarked, at more than twelve hundred a year, at the yearly value of my life interest, and the total reaches a present annual income of fifteen hundred pounds. I have the fairest prospect of soon making it more. In the meantime, do you object to me on pecuniary grounds? Driven back to his last entrenchment, Obenreizer rose and took a turn backwards and forwards in the room. For the moment he was plainly at a loss what to say or do next. "'Before I answer that last question,' he said, after a little close consideration with himself, "'I beg leave to revert for a moment to Miss Marguerite. You said something just now, which seems to imply that she returns the sentiment with which you are pleased to regard her.' "'I have the inestimable happiness,' said Vendale, of knowing that she loves me. Obenreizer stood silent for a moment, with the film over his eyes and the faintly perceptible beat becoming visible again in his cheeks. "'If you will excuse me for a few minutes,' he said, with ceremonious politeness, "'I should like to have an opportunity of speaking to my niece.' With those words he bowed and quitted the room. Left to himself, Vendale's thoughts, as a necessary result of the interview thus far, turned instinctively to the consideration of Obenreizer's motives. He had put obstacles in the way of their courtship. He was now putting obstacles in the way of the marriage, a marriage offering advantages which even his ingenuity could not dispute. On the face of it, his conduct was incomprehensible. What did it mean? Seeking under the surface for the answer to that question, and remembering that Obenreizer was a man of about his own age, 
also that Marguerite was, strictly speaking, his half-niece only, Vendale asked himself, with a lover's ready jealousy, whether he had a rival to fear, as well as a guardian to conciliate. The thought just crossed his mind, and no more. The sense of Marguerite's kiss still lingering on his cheek reminded him gently that even the jealousy of a moment was now a treason to her. On reflection it seemed most likely that a personal motive of another kind might suggest the true explanation of Obenreiser's conduct. Marguerite's grace and beauty were precious ornaments in that little household. They gave it a special social attraction and a special social importance. They armed Obenreiser with a certain influence in reserve which he could always depend upon to make his house attractive, and which he might always bring more or less to bear on the forwarding of his own private ends. Was he the sort of man to resign such advantages as were here implied, without obtaining the fullest possible compensation for the loss? A connection by marriage with Vendale offered him solid advantages beyond all doubt. But there were hundreds of men in London with far greater power and far wider influence than Vendale possessed. Was it possible that this man's ambition secretly looked higher than the highest prospects that could be offered to him by the alliance now proposed for his niece? As the question passed through Vendale's mind, the man himself reappeared, to answer it or not to answer it, as the event might prove. A marked change was visible in Obenreiser when he resumed his place. His manner was less assured, and there were plain traces about his mouth of recent agitation which had not been successfully composed. Had he said something, referring either to Vendale or to himself, which had raised Marguerite's spirit, and which had placed him for the first time face to face with a resolute assertion of his niece's will? It might, or might not be. This only was certain. He looked like a man who had met with a repulse. "'I have spoken to my niece,' he began. "'I find, Mr. Vendale, that even your influence has not entirely blinded her to the social objections to your proposal.' "'May I ask?' returned Vendale. "'If that is the only result of your interview with Miss Obenreiser.' A momentary flash leapt out through the Obenreiser film. "'You are master of the situation,' he answered, in a tone of sardonic submission. "'If you insist on my admitting it, I do admit it in these words. My niece's will and mine used to be one, Mr. Vendale. You have come between us, and her will is now yours. In my country we know when we are beaten, and we submit with the best grace. I submit.' with my best grace, on certain conditions. Let us revert to the statement of your pecuniary position. I have an objection to you, my dear sir, a most amazing, a most audacious objection, from a man in my position to a man in yours. What is it? You have honoured me by making a proposal for my niece's hand. For the present— with best thanks and respects, I beg to decline it. Why? Because 
you are not rich enough this objection as the speaker had foreseen took vendale completely by surprise for the moment he was speechless your income is fifteen hundred a year pursued obenreizer in my miserable country i should fall on my knees before your income and say what a princely fortune in wealthy england i sit as i am and say a modest independence dear sir nothing more enough perhaps for a wife in your own rank of life who has no social prejudices to conquer not more than half enough for a wife who is a meanly born foreigner and who has all your social prejudices against her sir if my niece is ever to marry you she will have what you call uphill work of it in taking her place at starting yes yes this is not your view but it remains immovably remains my view for all that for my niece's sake i claim that this uphill work shall be made as smooth as possible ever material advantage she can have to help her ought in common justice to be hers now tell me mr vendale on your fifteen hundred a year can your wife have a house in a fashionable quarter a footman to open her door a butler to wait at her table and a carriage and horses to drive about in i see the answer in your face your face says no very good tell me one more thing and i have done take the mass of your educated accomplished and lovely countrywomen is it or is it not the fact that a lady who has a house in a fashionable quarter a footman to open her door a butler to wait at her table and a carriage and horses to drive about in is a lady who has gained four steps in female estimation at starting yes or oh, no come to the point said vendale you view this question as a question of terms what are your terms the lowest terms dear sir on which you can provide your wife with those four steps at starting double your present income the most rigid economy cannot do it in england on less you said just now that you expected greatly to increase the value of your business to work and increase it i am a good devil after all on the day when you satisfy me by plain proofs that your income has risen to three thousand a year ask me for my niece's hand and it is yours may i inquire if you have mentioned this arrangement to miss obenreizer certainly she has a last little morsel of regard still left for me mr vendale which is not yours yet and she accepts my terms in other words she submits to be guided by her guardian's regard for her welfare and by her guardian's superior knowledge of the world he threw himself back in his chair in firm reliance on his position and in full possession of his excellent temper any open assertion of his own interests in the situation in which vendale was now placed seemed to be for the present at least hopeless he found himself literally left with no ground to stand on whether obenreizer's objections were the genuine product of obenreizer's own view of the case 
or whether he was simply delaying the marriage in the hope of ultimately breaking it off altogether, in either of these events any present resistance on Vendale's part would be equally useless. There was no help for it but to yield, making the best terms that he could on his own side. "'I protest against the conditions you impose on me,' he began. "'Naturally,' said Obenreizer, "'I dare say I shall protest myself in your place.' "'Say, however,' pursued Vendale, "'that I accept your terms. "'In that case I must be permitted to make two stipulations on my part. "'In the first place I shall expect to be allowed to see your niece.' "'Aha! To see my niece, and to make her in as great a hurry to be married as you are yourself. Suppose I say no. You would see her, perhaps, without my permission?' "'Decidedly.' "'Oh, how delightfully frank! How exquisitely English! You shall see her, Mr. Vendale, on certain days which we will appoint together. What next?' "'Your objection to my income,' proceeded Vendale, "'has taken me completely by surprise. "'I wish to be assured against any repetition of that surprise. "'Your present views of my qualification for marriage "'require me to have an income of three thousand a year. "'Can I be certain in the future, as your experience of England enlarges, "'that your estimate will rise no higher?' "'In plain English?' said Obenreizer. "'You doubt my word?' "'Do you propose to take my word for it "'when I inform you that I have doubled my income?' asked Vendale. "'If my memory does not deceive me, "'you stipulated a minute since for plain proofs.' "'Well played, Mr. Vendale. "'You combine the foreign quickness with the English solidity.' Accept my best congratulations. Accept also my written guarantee. He rose, seated himself at a writing-desk at a side-table, wrote a few lines, and presented them to Vendale with a low bow. The engagement was perfectly explicit, and was signed and dated with scrupulous care. Are you satisfied with your guarantee? I am satisfied. "'Charmed to hear it, I am sure. "'We have had our little skirmish. "'We have really been wonderfully clever on both sides. "'For the present our affairs are settled. "'I bear no malice, you bear no malice. "'Come, Mr. Vendale, a good English shake-hands.' "'Vendale gave his hand, a little bewildered "'by Obenreizer's sudden transitions from one humour to another. "'When may I expect to see Miss Obenreizer again?' he asked, as he rose to go. "'Honour me with a visit to-morrow,' said Obenreizer. "'And we will settle it then. Do you have a grog before you go? No? Well, well, we will reserve the grog till you have had your three thousand a year, and are ready to be married. Ha! When will that be?' "'I made an estimate some months since of the capacities of my business,' said Vendale. "'If that estimate is correct,' "'I shall double my present income.' "'And be married,' added Obenreizer. "'And be married,' repeated Vendale, "'within a year from this time. "'Good night.'
End of Act Two, Scene One. Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.